For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host. Super excited to be here today with Jeffrey Harvey. Um, Jeffrey was one of our speakers at our 2023 Drugs and Addiction Conference here in Jackson, Mississippi. And we met through that experience of coming across him as a fantastic speaker. And um, he just has such a wealth of knowledge and and learning and personal experience related to treatment for people who are struggling with a substance use disorder and things that he's learned, how his own mindset has shifted over time from things he used to uh, not support to things he now helps people access in terms of types of treatment. And so uh, welcome, Jeffrey. Really glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and then we'll talk about kind of what you do today and um, and how it impacts people, because really that's what this is all about, people and how we can help more people who are struggling. So who is Jeffrey? Be, <laughs> that's a good question. Depends on what day of the week it is. <laughs> um, um, as it relates to today, um, my name is Jeffrey Harvey. I'm the clinic director for Jackson Comprehensive Treatment Center. We're harm reduction clinic um, located here in Jackson, one of the, the largest uh, harm reduction clinics in the state of Mississippi. Um, when you ask who am I, you know, I, I tell people what I do for a living is, you know, it's a passion of mine. So I don't, it's, it is a part of who I am, um, but I'm just really just uh, excited about what I get excited about recovery and helping people, um, you know, regain their lives and hope and optimism and looking forward to the future. And um, I tell people when I speak, I always speak from both the clinical side because by trade, I'm a, I'm a, a licensed um, professional counselor who specializes in substance use disorder treatment, um, more specifically opioid use disorder treatment. Um, um, but I, I serve in an administrative capacity now, so I, I, I don't have as much direct contact with patients, but I am able to um, implement policies and procedure that 
you know, directly affects their recovery. So um, I didn't choose this field. This field chose me. Um, I, I'm passionate about helping people get sober again and regain their lives, watch families repaired, um, children coming home, you know, people going on to claim a new future. And so when it, as it relates to me, I just tell people I'm just Jeff. Uh, I don't even like people to call me boss, clinic director, none of that stuff. My name is just Jeff. And I tell people I'm a garden variety alcoholic and addict. Um, I know that's, you know, I call myself that, um, because I'm, I'm no, no more than less. I just was blessed with the opportunity to live two lives in one lifetime. So I try to help other people find it for themselves. And what are some of the things that you've learned along that journey? Because your own pathway to recovery personally is, is different than what the pathway is that you offer to people in the clinic. Um, certainly they can find sobriety in the same way that you did, but you are offering them a lot of options that maybe you didn't have on your own recovery journey, but maybe didn't even support or didn't think they were worthwhile or effective. So talk about kind of that process for you of um, the the pathway that you took to sobriety and, and then that mindset shift for you and what you do today, the kinds of things you offer people. Now that's the part that'll take a little while. It's, it's not a maybe. There's a, I tell people, don't always itch what I say in stone. I'm not Moses. Uh, I'm not the, the uh, disciples. Um, I like to do a lot of research. And, you know, I, I was born here in Jackson, and I was raised in a Pentecostal church to begin with. So I was taught early on that certain things you do uh, damage your your mortal being and, you know, if you don't, you know, if you do something, certain things just kind of doom you to hell and I, like I again though, but I was raised by a grandmother and a mother who loved me dearly. I, I they took me to church. They taught me to, to to clean, keep the house clean, iron my clothes. We washed the car before um, church Sunday. We went to church. I played football. I played basketball, um, and I was a I was a pretty decent student in school. So I say all that to say that I had a you know I, I was raised I would say poor to some people, but I never knew I was raised poor. If that makes sense. And and um, I was taught early on about having a relationship with God, and they took me to the church, and they threw all on my head and everything. Um, and so I, I got raised, I would say, um, the right way by people who love me. To a certain extent, though, they almost loved me to death, literally. Um, and they didn't mean, you know, they didn't mean to do that. But I tell people that, you know, my recovery, my responsibility. You know, I, I got raised the right way. You know, but what happened was, you know, these things that we teach in substance use disorder, um, I'm sorry, in drug and alcohol prevention. We talk about peer pressure and, you know, the, the, the environment, all these these factors. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely a big advocate of prevention work, um, going into schools, working with children. I think it's a lot easier to, to, to prevent them. I think research says that you can prevent them from doing it. To the age of 22, they're less likely to uh, to form a substance use disorder. So I'm a big advocate for, for prevention too. Uh, I work a lot with DMH, uh, Department of Mental Health, on uh, a lot of prevention efforts, and it's just something that's near and dear to me. But as it relates to me, I, you know, I got raised the right way, but I, I got out in the world and I started behaving like a heathen. Right, I forgot everything my mother and my grandmother taught me, and I made up my mind early on. The church took too long. And I didn't like being there all day. And whenever I get grown, I'm never going back. 
Now, I, I say that because, you know, my grandmother was trying to have me an introduction to what we call now uh, power greater than myself. And and I formed, she formed, helped me form that foundation. But I went out into the world and I behaved like a heathen. You know, I, I tell people, I, you know, I got this honestly. Like my family gave me the right tools and how to go out in the world and live. Um, but I didn't use them, but they were there. And um, I started hanging around the wrong crowd. And as a child, um, I won't go into names and things like specifics and things like that, but I got uh, sexually abused as a child. And, um, you know, I started to act out around late elementary school. And um, nobody ever asked what they always said was wrong with him. Right? Nobody never said what happened to him. Because those things honestly weren't popular back then. If you were bad, you got a spanking. That was it. Little boys don't cry, right? Toughen up. And I always kind of felt like a social outcast as a child. Um, all of my cousins, my brother, my, you know, we all kind of grew up together. And they all went on to do good things. My my two of my cousins went to the military. One of them is a doctor. Um, so I, I would say for as far as the boys concerned, my family didn't do bad. But I was kind of like that black sheep. I was the rebel. You know, I, I think like I tell people, I think I was kind of um the perfect storm happened, right? For, for me to have a substance use disorder. And uh, around 17, you know, I played basketball. I was active in high school, you know. I think I was a person that people were like. And he had this long head, these big teeth. And I always just kind of felt, um, had these insecurities. And I'll never forget, I went to a party with a, with a friend of mine and uh, we used to play basketball at his house. And um, they finally talked me into smoking marijuana. And I can specifically remember, remembering the first time I did, it was like, I want to feel like this forever, right? Mm -hmm. I felt taller, I felt cuter, felt like I could dance better, felt like people, now this is in my mind. When I later found out where my where my disease lies, this is all in my mind, and um, uh, and I also noticed later that where they would maybe you know do a little bit, my mind was always on the next one. It, it was always on the next one. Um, so I look back at that, and I had what I consider an addictive personality. Something changed the way I feel. And I had traumas and these other contributing factors, but but um, if something changed the way I feel, then I wanted two more. Um, it didn't matter what it was. Um, you could be shopping, it could be whatever. And um, that's where it started for me. Uh, I never really liked alcohol. It, 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 it's, I just never really liked it. I tried it. But with that, I learned early later on when I had some consequences, when I couldn't do any substances, they didn't tell me I couldn't drink. Um, and, and I drink alcoholically. Like I drink like I did anything else till it was gone. Mm. And uh, so, so um, that's pertinent because the, 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 the situation that I'm talking about that I couldn't do anything else, what, I, what happened was I had started to um, tamper with a lot of, people always ask me like, what were you addicted to? And I tell people I'm a buffet junkie. Me, not other, just me. Um, and, and that means that there were things that I would prefer to do and there are things that I hadn't done. Um, and I, I do a lot of trainings on, you know, stigma and what we perceive and you know, it's a known thing that if you around my age reign in the African-American man, oh, you smoke crack, right? And never smoked crack a day of my life. Um, not yet, because my disease still out there waiting for me to try. And, you know, it, it, I'm mentioning this training because, you know, it, if, I see a, if I see a distraught um, um, young white lady, 
people automatically think benzos or, or, or opiates. Or, and I tell people this disease is an equal opportunity destroyer. If I had diagnosed myself, which I won't do, but um, benzodiazepines, which would be a sedative hypnotic anxiolytic use disorder, what I would have, an opioid use disorder. Um, and I, back then, they considered those drugs to be cool, like the rappers were talking about, right? They, they're not like methamphetamine and, you know, crack. And, but the truth of the matter is I learned that they destroyed my life just as much as somebody who did something else. Um, it's the stuff that I hadn't done yet. And I learned that yet means you're eligible too. If I keep going, I will be trying it. Um, or if I had kept going. So what I started to do was I actually got, um, this is this is drug, and I think it's pertinent we can talk about this, that, that it's called promethazine with codeine cosir. And, and they call it lean drink. They got all these street names for it. But I, I started to drink this stuff before it was cool. And what happened was I got bronchitis one time. And a doctor gave me this stuff and I showed it to a friend. He was like, you know what that is? And we pulled it up and we and I drank it. And I remember again feeling like this is how I want to feel forever. Hmm. The catch is I never took any substances off the table, though. Like where I smoked marijuana. I didn't stop smoking marijuana and, and do the program. I was just kept adding new substances to it. Mm, mm-hmm. And I learned that, you know, that that was my disease progressing. And and I was just, and I, you know, I tampered with a lot of things. I tried ecstasy. Um, you name it, I probably tried it. PCP. Um, I think Jackson is kind of plagued with that right now. And it's a very hard drug. It's a very old drug, but it's a very hard drug to kick. And it's not physically de- addictive. But it's mentally addictive. And long story short, I, I decided to, you know, start writing my own prescriptions. I, you know, I'm a doctor now. Yeah, I had a, I, I, <laughs> I got a self-administered uh, uh, medical license, and I started writing my own prescriptions to get, you know, what I was addicted to. Now, at the time, I won't tell you I was addicted. I just like the way it tastes. Uh, it just, you know, it just, I like the way it make me feel. Um. But but then that day came that those hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair, where I wanted to quit. And I wouldn't tell anybody because, again, where I come from in that an African-American community, to be honest, if, if you know, I do have a high power and it's not much different than the one that my grandmother helped me find. But in that community, you just need to pray to him and, and he'll take it away from you. And that's that's not the way it worked for me. Um, and it didn't take long before I started piling up charges and um, I couldn't stop. And I think I caught three prescription forgery charges in like three months. And the disease is so powerful. I can specifically remember the last uh, prescription forgery charge that I caught. I can remember vividly. It was my going to be my daughter's birthday. And I was like, well, I won't go today because I, I don't want to be locked up for my daughter's birthday. But the day after her birthday, I went and tried it and got locked up. Now, if that's not a disease, I don't know what it is. Because I knew it was a chance I would get caught and I still did it. And but but again, that introduced me to my two angels, Judge Tommy Green and Judge Winston Kidd, two very good colleagues of mine now. But when I met them, we were not colleagues. Uh, I was looking at a long stint in jail for a lot of prescription forgery charges, and I was on probation. Um but for the first time, this lady, she finally broke something in me. And, and to be honest, um, God's been watching over me because I was supposed to be a convicted felon. Right? I went to court to tell this lady guilty and be adjudicated 
and being convicted felon. And she just looked at me and she kept looking at my charges. Fortunately enough for me, I was in school by then. And I was doing well, but I just had an addiction. And for the first time in my life, she looked at me and she said, Mr. Harvey, you have a problem with drugs, don't you? And uh, I tell people this to be funny, but <laughs> I was shackled. I was shackled in this jumpsuit. And I can remember looking, I wanted to like rub my head like I was thinking, but I was shackled. So I kind of looked up, I said, no ma'am. No man, and I and I look back at that. I know she thought this boy is has lost his mind. It's obvious that he has a problem with drugs. And she introduced me to a man who changed my life. Now he won't tell you that, uh, but I think God sent me that man. His name is Judge Winston Kidd. He's um, the magistrate over the Hines County Drug Court that I I feel privileged to sit on their treatment team now. Um, and I was on drug court for two and a half years and he, I, I always thought he was picking on me he, he would encourage me to go to school he would make me get up and talk in front of my peers on drug court and i just thought he was picking on me and i did well for a little while and what happened was that i um i started feeling drug tests again and i and i and i and i told him about the childhood you know molestation and he advised me to see a a, a start seeing a counselor about it and i did and that was that missing piece for me that i had never dealt with in my communities you don't talk about that especially don't tell another man that uh, because it made me feel have an inferiority complex and um but i've learned i, I talk about these things now for somebody else because everything that happened to me is not for me and the more i talked about it, the less it, it stung it didn't bother me anymore it, it happened to me to help somebody I believe this, everything that happened to me, God knew with me and him working together that I can get through it and I can help hundreds of people, which I've had the privilege of doing. And so in that sense, it wasn't in vain, it was worth it. Uh, the suffering of one person to help um, a lot of people is kind of what my higher power did for us. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. That was my introduction to drug court. However, I go into the last part of what you asked me about. When I went to treatment, you sit down, you shut up, you don't know nothing. If you don't want to be here, leave. I think I kind of needed that, but I'm open-minded enough to believe that not everybody needs it. Some people need love. Like I say, my family had already loved me. I needed, I needed a man or a woman to tell me how to carry the cabbage. If you keep doing drugs, you're going to die. Um, there was there was no MAT options, Medicaid assistant treatment. There were no, you know, I did it the old way, go into treatment, you know, basically detox in there, um, see a counselor, go to group and, and learn a structured life of how to be sober. Now it worked for me because that's what I needed. But I do think there are people now, they don't need somebody to tell them to sit down, shut up. You don't know anything about staying sober, blah, blah. Some people have been getting beat down like that their entire life. That's not what they need. So the treatment, I think in an iron fist and a velvet glove, you have to know when to be stern, but you also have to know when to love and to show unconditional positive regard. And that's a fine line. And it took me a while to get there because I walked into treating because I, I served as a 
drug and alcohol prevention specialist for another good organization, um, Region 9. I did uh, prevention work. I started a premier, the, the premier program, uh, opiate program in the state of Mississippi called Ground Zero. And it was for all indigent clients who could not pay for that kind of treatment. And um, then I went on to be the coordinator of alcohol and drug services for them. And I learned a lot and specifically about harm reduction treatment. Quick story. What changed my mind? Because I was not, I didn't get sober that way. So I was like, that's just cross addiction. Like it's just cross addiction. You're talking about using, using medication. Yes, in suboxone, yeah. suboxone, methadone. And, you know, and much like my creator always does is he just kind of like, okay, you think that? Well, I'm going to show you something. I never forget, I met this young lady. She got out of treatment. She went to a treatment center around here. I won't call them their name out. And uh, and she, she used to come to this clubhouse where we used to hang out at. Um, and she she really kind of looked up to us. Um, but she used to listen to the way we used to talk about um, treatment, and specifically harm reduction treatment, medicaid-assisted treatment. What we didn't know was she was taking Suboxone. Uh, beautiful person, beautiful soul, just a good person. Later, I found out that she just said that I used to listen to how y'all used to talk like, and I just felt like I really wasn't sober. She went back out mm -hmm. and, and she couldn't get sober for about the next three or four years. And I, I, you know, and I felt so bad because I don't want to hurt anybody. And, and what I did was I started to research these medicines and I started to learn like, you know, about Suboxone and, you know, the Narcan is in it and it activates if you do this. And I learned about Vivitrol and Sublocade, like this, it, you know, the injection site is, you know, sublingual and blah, 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 and methadone. And I start to learn which ones the most effective. And that it changed my mind. And and I I, I took on a, a grant that was failing, um, the grant that we used to start that Ground Zero group at Region 9. And, um, you know, I, I never, I'm never, I don't mind admitting my faults. I, my thinking about that was wrong and it was selfish and self-centered. And I didn't take into account that this, this medication, these, these types of treatment are different pathways to recovery and they help save people's lives and they are harm reduction, which means I'm reducing the risk of harm. And, and who am I to say what's somebody's pathway to recovery? My, my job is to offer different pathways to get similar or the same result. And uh, so I just went out there with fervor. I partnered with the Department of Mental Health, who has been a big advocate for that kind of treatment. And I just I started to get busy and I just started to get out there and and, and try to, you know, do what my creator wants me to do. And um, so with her, she was taking Suboxone, but you didn't know it. So she didn't would come and hang out with you guys. Mm -hmm. She would hear you guys dogging yeah. Suboxone and, dog, you know, these medications and think and to her it it took away her sense of, Hey, I'm, I'm doing the, I'm, t I'm doing the right thing. I'm taking the yep. right path. And it felt like, well, if I'm taking this medication, I'm not really sober. So she stops taking the medication and she loses the sobriety that she had yeah. gained on it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I'd be more specific. She did. This is a big thing in, in support groups. Um, like they come in and you have people that won't sponsor them. Um, and, and so if you're taking medication, the, yes. the rest of the recovery community kind of holds you at arm's length and says, no, yeah. you're not really part of us. This is true. But I tell you this, um, I have been to several support groups around the Tri-County area. And I, I, matter of fact, I used to take one of my groups over to them and I caught somebody doing it. And I, I can be, I'm a very nice, I'm a pleasant guy. 
but I consider them like my babies. Now, don't you don't bother them. And what I tell people is this: if I go to the doctor and I have, I you know, how many high cholesterol pills do I take first thing a day? I don't know. You don't know because that's between me and my doctor. It's the same way that, that with, with with that kind of treatment. That's between them and their doctor. And who are we to judge them? I always tell people, what would the master do? Um, if there's a bright side of that story, I got a call from this young lady about four weeks ago. She's in another state in Alabama, and she told me that she's been sober for 12, 13 months now. Wow. Um, so she was able to get sober again. Um, and I'm happy of that for her. Um, but that that experience definitely opened my eyes that I need to watch what I do think and say about other people because who am I to tell anybody what's best for them? You know, someone that I wake up and I don't know what's best for me. Right. Um, so, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, so now I, I actually advocate for that group of people and I go out and I speak for them and I, because I stand on what I believe. I, I believe, you know, if I get uh, this another situation, 34 year old woman, four kids, three not in her custody, CPS has three, her mother has one, uh, four pending felony charges, Two years later, on the medication, she getting counseling, completed her probation for the felony charges, has custody of all four of her kids, and now she works and going to school to get her bachelor's degree. I'll take that any day. And all she has to do is some counseling and take a medication. And that has given her hope and optimism and turned her into a productive citizen again. Mm. Um, that's the purpose. That's the outcome. That's what we that's what we're seeking. So um so then I went a step further and I started to effect the, I started to research the most effective medications. And I found out where I was at, we can offer that the most effective medication. Research says the most effective MAT medication is methadone for what we're dealing with now, uh, which is fentanyl. Mm. Um, so what do I do? I uproot from where I've been for close to 10 years. And I take on a, a, another task of, of a harm reduction clinic, they can offer that medication, build a team of experts, and I and I get it. So it really is a for me as somebody who doesn't come from the recovery community. I came into this sort of as you know open open minded. I didn't have any knowledge really of how people thought about recovery. I didn't know people in recovery that that I, I'm sure I did know people in recovery, but that I knew were in recovery. Okay. Um, and so to me, I was kind of learning about this whole issue of drugs and addiction at the same time that I was also learning about these medications. So to me, it seemed like, oh, this makes perfect sense. You would use all the tools in the tool belt. Why would you throw some of the tools out when they have been proven to be effective for some people? And probably it's important to say there is no form of treatment that is effective for the majority of people who try it. I mean, these are very complex challenges with any type of substance use disorder. And so to have an arsenal of tools is really important because you're going to find 10% of people one approach is effective for, maybe 10% of people another approach is effective for. Like there's, it, it's it's important to have these kind of lots of tools in the tool belt. Is it, is the reason why even in your own experience and we're, your experience now working with other people, is it that there has been such a is is the hesitancy to consider medication just as much a part of recovery as just total abstinence? Um, is that hesitation from 
a long history where it just wasn't present in the recovery community. And, you know, we've had a hundred years or whatever it has been of kind of the, the abstinence model. And then as these medications have come along, there's just been a hesitancy to, um, to open the door for those being part of someone's journey. What do you think it is that, because people do have very strong opinions about medication and the use of that in, um, in recovery. I think it's several factors. I mean, on a small degree, I think some of it is like a mild resentment. It's like, well, these things went around when I got sober. All right. So I think there's a small amount of resentment there. I think also that it's just, you know, it, it's, it's different. It's, and I'll say this. It comes from like the same thing that causes um, disdain amongst other things. Like I say race. It's the same thing. Like people are afraid of what they don't know about. Right. And, and, and rather than learn and research, they, they are, I, I, I seek to, to, to ostracize, you know, what I don't know. Mm. Um, and, and, and I don't know about it. I didn't have the opportunity to do it, so it can't be good. Mm. Um, I, th- I think it's that. Um, so as it relates to these medications, I think, you know, I, I won't go into specifics, but you know what we were talking about prior to coming on here. And and I think, you know, it, we're either all the way to the left or we're all the way to the right, right? There's a, there's a gray area when we start to have treatment for people, right? I think, more, I think more access to these medications is a good thing. But I think just taking the reins off and have a free fall, um, I think can be tragic. Um, but there's there's a lot of regulations and things that we can change to, to have more accessibility to these medications. The recovery community, a lot of times that 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 is there is because they simply don't understand. You have a lot of old heads in there who who alcohol is they thing, right? So I don't want you coming here talking about drugs. But even in a, a part of their literature, they talk about this doctor who was renowned for alcohol and drug treatment, and they talk about sedatives in this same book. Those are drugs. Um, so I've, I've learned that the recovery standpoint, the, the clinical side of it, and just my personal experience. And, and that's what I advocate for. I just, I think people don't know about these medications. It makes them afraid. Um, and just because they didn't do it that way, they feel like that's not the right way, but I'm sure you've never met anybody like that. that you can do it this way and it's not wrong, but it's not the way I would have did it. And, mm-hmm. and recovery and clinically recovery is about choice, about, um, person-centered treatment. I have a say in how I, I have a say in how I get sober, because if you take that away from me and you just tell me what I'm going to do, I'm not going to do it. I, I'm, I'm not because I don't have a say in it. And I'll be honest with you from Jeffrey. If you write a treatment plan, which is how I'm supposed to get better and you don't include me in it, you do it. You wrote it. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I want to know what you want to do, because if you want to do it and you tell me this and you feel like it's a collaborative effort, I'm more likely to do it. Because these are goals of mine. And when I don't do it, it's easy for a clinical personnel to call me on it because, dude, you you told me this is what you wanted to do. Mm. And, they, and they're more open to the process of, um, in old school treatment, it wasn't a process. You went in, they wrote a treatment plan, they told you this is what you're going to do. You're not going to do drugs. And you're going to go to this support group. And I'm like, no, I'm not. You go to the support group. Um, so a lot of these biases, it's just because people don't know in sheer ignorance, not stupidity, ignorance which means they just don't know any better. Mm. Um, 
they are FDA approved medications. They have efficacy and they 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 work. And 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 this from somebody who's just as ignorant as maybe the people we're talking about. I'm not exempt from that ignorance, but the difference is I don't have that contempt prior to investigation now. I'm mm. willing to research and learn before I have a voice about it. Because uh, sometimes I just, you know, if I don't know something, it's it's okay to be quiet and learn. Mm. Oh, um, that's good. We need to put that on a t-shirt or something. If I you, mean, <laughs> I mean, we all feel like we've got to have a strong opinion about everything instead of just saying, you know, I, I, don't, know. I don't actually know. I need to do a little more learning. I need, to, I need to do a little research before I stick my neck out and say what I think about it. Yeah, yeah. And with, it, as far as like even with even with methadone, like for years I worked with uh, like you know Subutex. I got one of the first clinics in the state to get um, certified to do supplicate, and a lot of people were like, "What is that?" It's the injectable form, basically, of Suboxone, and it lasts thirty days. And I learned that you know with Suboxone, great medication, Subutex, great medication, but I have to depend on you to make thirty to thirty-one good decisions a month. Right. Every mm, morning I need to make it a every day. Yeah. Sublicate. All I got, I, I just need you to make one good decision a month. Right. Just one. And that's to go get your shot. Because you lock in for the money. Vivitol, hmm. another non-narcotic medication, uh, primarily used for alcohol, but it can be used for opioid use disorders too. Um, and, and and where I am now, we offer all these medications. Um I went ahead and I learned, okay, we're methadone. I'm, I'm not for that. I, I don't know why everything I give God got claw marks on. Right, right. So, so, like, so like then he sent me over here and I started researching. I'm like, for what we're dealing with, this fentanyl, it's, this is the most effective medication. Like, I, I don't argue with you. It's hard. Only a fool argues with numbers. Um, You know, for I have found that, you know, your Percocets, your lower tabs, you know, the pretty pills, what I call them. Uh, so my works well. Some takes they work well, but for your stronger drugs, your um, your fentanyl, and you know some of the stronger things that are um, what is it, xylazine? Some of these stronger things, it, methadone is the most effective way to to deal with it. And so I, I just looked them through my hand. I'm like, God, I'm you know, I'm just kind of through telling you what I know because he just keeps pushing me further into this journey, and he keeps showing me that, son, the more you know, the less you know, like stay eager to learn and, and mm -hmm. that's what i do now i, I don't have again i don't have that contempt prior to investigation i shut up and i'm not telling anybody else to but i shut up until i know what i'm talking about yeah and once i know what i'm talking about i realize i only know a little but more would be revealed and uh yeah. yeah so how many with methadone if people aren't aware of, of how it works currently um you have to show up at a clinic mm -hmm. every day no, and take it yeah. on site is that still yeah. how it this works is, this is the deal this is what i mean and i'm glad you mentioned it i believe in incentivizing treatment um the majority of, of harm reduction clinics they they, they, they they can still be kind of punitive without realizing it um and the the what what happens at this clinic is this when i got here i, I saw where you come in and dose daily and that's that's surely for um safety reasons and 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 i started looking and i was like okay so to get an additional take home take homes mean medication that i can take home and not have to come to the clinic every day mm. um it was you phase up every third every 90 days which means in order to get a month supply you would have to go to a clinic about a year and a half with no failed drug test 
And I was like, this, 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 this is ridiculous. This doesn't incentivize treatment. Because I always put myself back in that, in that for part of treatment. Like if I came in here and you told me that I can only phase up every 90 days. And it would take a year and a half before I can get a, 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 a 27-day take home, which is the regulation, the, the maximum amount we can give at one time. Okay. I, I would say no, I'm I'm because the dope house open every day. Mm. Well, I can go over there and I like their company more than y'all's anyway. Um, so I got with you know administration and we started talking, and then I'm gonna tell you how God works. SAMSHA came out with their new guideline, and their guideline was a lot less restrictive. And I got with my regional director and I outlined a plan where I said, this is ridiculous. Like it shouldn't take 90 days to get an additional take home. So I was able to, 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 to bargain with them to get them to see that this incentivized treatment. And what happened is now you can phase up every 30 days here. Hmm. And if you, and if you have an, a, a slip, what I call, I don't like to say relapse. I say slip sobriety losing its priority. And and you have that slip. We're not gonna penalize you, and make you go back for ninety days because I think it's you need a you need a pop, but I don't think I need to hit you with a stick. Hmm. So it only takes thirty days, and you can go back up. It's a good learning opportunity. And the, the, the short version is this: we went from taking a year and a half, which is the majority of clinics around here, a year and a half to get twenty-seven take homes to now over six months. You do what you're supposed to do. You can get a twenty-seven day take home in six months. Hmm. So we did more than cut it in half. As far as the stigma would come into clinics, I understand that side. I mean, you know what we're talking about now, but we won't. I don't know if you want to call it out. But 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 the thing with that is, I think the stigma is a societal stigma. I, I don't think coming to the clinic would be as stigmatizing if society, these people we've been talking about, it were more open to. Um, if I, I have high cholesterol, I go see my doctor. Nobody's gonna look at me funny for going in and seeing uh, one of the, the, the best doctors in the state, Timothy Queen. Shout out to my boy. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna, like, well, what is he going in Dr. Queen's office for? Nobody's gonna say that. But if they see them coming in here, it's like, oh, they go to that clinic. So it's not happening to come in here that stigmatize. It's the way society still views these medications. Um, and I think we can do something about that. I think more marketing. I think Indy for Good is doing a great job of letting people know when you make them feel like that, you're almost as deadly as, as fentanyl. Because if I feel stigmatized by your view of me and I want you to have a fun view of me and I don't go get treatment because of your view of what, what I'm thinking about doing and I die, you know, you, I got, you got blood on your hands. Um, mm. So, so. You know, so it really just, can keep people from accessing something that could be life-saving to them just because they have heard this message. That's not real treatment. That's not real, you know, you, that's, that's not real a, sobriety. If you listen, if you on these medications, you listen to you sober as anybody else. Stigma has the power to kill people. People, regardless of what people tell you, and they say, I don't care what people think about me. Those are probably the people who do care the most. It just sound good because everybody wants everybody to have a fun view of them. You know, the, the pretty kids, the nice home. I say, that's, that's okay. But when I care about what people think about me and, and I won't go get something that's going to probably help save my life, the stigma that I'm feeling has the power to kill. 
yeah, true, I went out and and, and, and I did this and whatever. But that goes back to what I said about my addiction. Like, those hideous four horsemen where I can't stop, you know, I want to stop, but I can't, and I have that frustration, terror, bewilderment, despair. I have those things, and I want to call Jeffrey. I want to call Christina and go reach out and get this help, but I'm so afraid of what my parents, my cousins, my brothers, my neighbors, I'm so afraid of what they're going to think that I don't do it. So because of this part of it, you know, because of their stigma, I die. Like, like stigma has the power to kill people, and people don't realize that. Um, and I scream from the hills. You know, I won't use the language sometimes. I tell people, but that's really none of your concern. When I go see Timothy Quinn, whatever me and him discussing there is nobody's business. That's why we have all these confidentiality laws and HIPAA mm-hmm. and all these things. That's between me and my doctor. And these medications are administered by doctors. Here, um, happens to come to the clinic every day to dose. To be honest, that's only in the first 30 days here at Jackson Comprehensive Treatment. After that, you see your doctor, you get counseling, and you're doing what you're supposed to do. Then we give you an additional take home. Then you, you continue to see your counselor and you're working on contributing factors to your substance use. You know, I, I'll say this underlying issues. Uh, the medication helps with the the difference between this is what I mean to tell you. There's a lot of disdain about harm reduction medication because a lot of people have resentments. They're like, well, there were no medicines for crack when they came out. Well, there wasn't. So people feel like, you know, when a certain population of people, but I have an overuse disorder. You, you know, you understand what I'm saying? So, so the difference that people don't seem to realize is there's a difference between opioid use disorders and say stimulant use disorders, whether it be cocaine or amphetamine type substances. With opioid use disorder, there's not only a mental obsession where I think about it, there's a physical like my bones hurt, I get chilled, sweat, I, I want to throw up and, you know, I have diarrhea and all these things. And what I tell people who don't have use disorders is if you get sick, 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 flu sick, very sick, you're going to go to the doctor and the doctor's going to give you some medicine. You're not going to question the doctor about what he gave you. You're going to take it and you're going to feel better. It's the same thing with them with that physical part of their addiction. When I say you start to get sick, Either I'm going to the dope man or I'm going somewhere where they can monitor me to make sure I don't like hurt myself taking something. Mm-hmm. Uh, with those withdrawal symptoms when those hit you if you're trying to quit. Yeah. There you go. And and the medication treats have it not only helps treat the withdrawals, it helps with that that it gives you enough to to give you enough relief. Because if I'm sitting in your office, Christina, you're talking to me about cognitive behavior and support groups or whatever. If I'm sitting there going to withdrawals or craving or I'm not thinking about, I'm not focused on what you're trying to help me with. I'm not. These medications give them enough relief to where they 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 are they are more open to counseling, support group meetings. They can focus now. If you're listening, you're interested in solutions so that fewer people are harmed by drugs or addiction. Hop on our website and grab my new book, Curious, A Foster Mom's Discovery of an Unexpected Solution to Drugs and Addiction. It is a memoir of my learning journey on these issues. It starts when I'm nine years old and continues through the founding and growth of End for Good. But it's really more than a memoir. It includes the stories of people like Michelle, who found a unique path to sobriety. 
and stories like James, who walked with his son through addiction and has incredible wisdom to share with other families. It's really more of a memoir on a mission to share my journey and the people that I've met along the way with you. There are better solutions. Grab a copy of Curious for yourself and maybe one for a friend. And let's grow a movement toward life, health, and hope. But with it, what we were talking about without calling the name, um, when, once I opened up access to that, a part, a big, a huge part of what makes um, Medicaid assisted treatment therapy yeah, effective, part of the fidelity is that I received counseling. Um, that adds to the effectiveness. And if I and if I take away the guardrails where I can just go get this medicine and I can opt out of getting the counseling, I'm not getting the counseling. I'm telling you something like with a substance disorder. Just give me my medicine and I'm opting out of the counseling. But the counseling adds to the effectiveness. And I don't think Walgreens mm-hmm. and CBS don't require anybody to do counseling. You come in, you pay, you get your medicine and you leave. Um, and and But it's like this. It's two part with opioid use disorder. You have the physical addiction, which the medication works very well with, but you have these contributing factors. Mine was childhood, you know, sexually molestation, you know, counseling helps deal with the underlying factors. Mm-hmm. I tell people this, the medication is for like the pain, which you can see that the, the addiction, the counseling helps with the, um, like you go to the doctor, if you have a, an infection, it swells up and it hurts. He gives you pain medicine. But he also gives you something else called antibiotics. Right? The counseling is the antibiotic because eventually, you know, if I'm getting counseling and I'm using the antibiotic, the infection starts to leave. That's dealing with those contributing factors. And once you remove, once you remove the contributing factors to me using and I and I heal from those, I don't have what what catapulted me into using to begin with. Um, yeah. And there's yep. no time limit. There's no time limit on. I saw a counselor, and I'm a counselor by trade. I saw a counselor for years. There's no time limit on it. People ask me, well, do you think they should be taking it for five, 10, 15 years? And I tell them, well, do you tell your doctor you don't need to take your high blood pressure medicine after 15 years? Like it's person centered. So this person might take it three years and decide to start um, you know, medically detoxing off of it. And we have doctors who are walking through that. We have patients who choose to do that and do well. And we have some people who they, they some of their contributing factors are a lot deeper and it takes longer. But I don't believe in a time limit on the medication. That's between you and the doctor. Uh, my job is to make sure that you have the services are there, uh, easier access to the services, and just to let them know if y'all listening, it's okay. It's okay to take a medication. It's, if, if, if this medicine turns you into a productive citizen, you can be a parent, a son, a daughter, an uncle, right? You can have a life, hope, optimism. You take it for as long as you need to, as long as you need to, no rush. So as you think about your work, you do get to see some great success stories. Um, Mm -hmm. You also lose people sometimes. And how, what keeps you encouraged as you work on the front lines of addiction? You see lots of people struggling. You see the wins and the losses. Um, What keeps you going? I put two in one. I give you some stories and answer the question at the same time. How about that? Great. All right. So I, I've only, at it, it, my prior job, I lost um, two people. And one of them, until I lost my old phone, I kept the message from his brother in my phone. And his brother reached out to me and he told me that, that he had overdosed 
and that he didn't he he didn't think he was gonna make it. And he didn't make it. Um, and I can specifically remember this guy was sober for about four months. He's doing pretty good. Um, and he called me on a Sunday. This was doing uh like right before COVID. A lot of my patients had my cell number because it was that was kind of tricky then. I mean, I tell people that you know, yeah, they have my number, and you know, but just because the office closed don't mean the dope house closed. Like they still need me after office hours. And um, I can remember he was sold for about four months and he called me on a Sunday and he said, man, I tried some heroin. He said, and I, I didn't even, I didn't shoot it up. I didn't inject it, Jeff, I snorted it. He said, and I overdosed. And I can remember telling him that, man, your, your body's telling you, um, your mind is telling you that I, this is how much I do. But your body telling you, yeah, you haven't done this much, though, in four months. Like, and this is a lot of times where overdose was happening. And I told him, and this might not be politically correct, but I told him, I said, I won't call his name, but I said, if you if you, if you, you don't stop, then, then your chances of survival are not good. And that Tuesday, he was supposed to come see me that Tuesday, his brother called me, and I was, it was like two in the morning and I woke up to a message that said he didn't think he was gonna make it. He, he died. Hmm. That bothered me. And I kept that 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 voicemail because I'm like this. I tell people if you're a surgeon, you're a good surgeon, ambulance calls in, gunshot wound to the to the head, patients coming in, all right, stag prep, let's get everything together, boom, 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 put up into the ambulance, open the back door, pull the sheet back, it's your son. Can you act in their best interest? I wouldn't be able to. Um, so my point is, I have to. I always try to stay emotionally because I can't act in their best interest when I get um, emotionally tired or unstable. So I always have to be kind of direct, firm, straight to the point. Not because I don't love them, but because I I, I love them too much to you know. I rather hurt your feelings than walk around your grave. Right. I'd rather hurt your feelings by telling you the truth than walk around your grave. And um, so I kept that recording. I would listen to it from time to time. And it gave me motivation to get up on them 2.30 mornings when I don't want to get up at 2.30. I won't stay in bed like y'all and stay warm. Um, when it's ice or storm outside and I want to say we closed, but I know my people, um, they need their medicine. And if, and if I can't give it to them, then the dope man going to be open. Um, so those kind of things keep me up. Lastly, I have a success story. I can actually call his name um, because he works for me now. Um, he's a peer supporter of mine. He, 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 this guy, when I met him, he, he said, when I met you, Jeff, I didn't like you. He said, I thought you was, I thought you were a hole. He said, but when I look back at it, it was because you always told me the truth and you really didn't care how I felt about it. Um, and he came in and I could just tell something instantly about this young man. He was, he was smart. You could tell he was smart and that could be dangerous when you're trying to get sober. He was smart. Um, he, I always think he can outthink, outcome and outmaneuver. And I, and I, and I tell him, you can't BS or BS. And, uh, so I, I got him hooked up in another, uh, another program that I started and he stayed sober about a year. And he told me, man, I want to, I think I want to work kind of doing what you do. And I told him, I said, I tell you what, if you stay sober 16 months, I'm gonna get you a job. He stayed sober 16 months. He came back and um, I got him a job where I used to work. And he was a peer support. And, you know, for those who don't know about peer support, they are another weapon that we use 
we have the medication, we have the counselors, but we have peer support, which is just as effective. Because a lot of times they won't listen to a counselor or, or the doctor who's seeing them, or you know, they look at me and say, oh, he, you know, he's so far detached away from, you know, he don't remember what it's like. I can send that peer support in that room and, and he can bridge them. And they, you know, you don't look like a, you know, you don't look like you have a substance disorder. And you, yeah. And what you do? I had to listen to jail. I had to listen to the doctor. I had to listen. So he bridges them over to doing what's best for them. And his name is um, Lofton. We call him Lofton. I've talked to him prior to coming on here. And I take him everywhere I go um, because he's going to do great things to help people. And Lofton just picked up three, going to pick up four years. And wow. when I left my old job, I brought him with me, um, gave him more money and got him his own office. And he sits around there. He do peer support work. He sees it for individuals, for groups. Um, he's just a part of the team. Like there's no big eyes and little use around here. I treat the doctor the same way I treat the guy who come clean the building. My grandma taught me that. Um, and every part of this, we're like a motor. Uh, just because I'm the director doesn't mean I'm more important than them. Like we're like a motor. Your motor, you need a you need a carburetor, you need the transmission, you need all these different parts, or it don't run right. And um, so we just had happen to have all the right parts. Um, so stories like like Lofton's and, and even stories that, that that didn't end so well, but learning to use them effectively um to think about when I'm making decisions about this could cost somebody their life. Um to see a mother come in with her kids, and I got a little play section out there with toys. Um, and I get the counsel, I go out with why they kids, why they play, why they go dose. Um, but even if I didn't get a check, I would find some kind of capacity to work with these population of people. It just inspires me. And but they don't know this, but it actually strengthens my recovery too. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, as we wrap up, anything else you'd like to share? Um uh, Jackson Comprehensive Treatment Center. We're located on Lakeland Drive. Um, we utilize harm reduction medications as you know, medicaid-assisted treatment. Uh, we do intakes Monday through Friday from five in the morning to nine. Um, you will be treated with dignity, respect, and love. I consider us to be a family. Um, we incentivize treatment, which means we don't, we don't, you know, we don't have to prove anything to us. We, we make it easier to access. Um, medications along the SAMHSA guideline. I don't know if they know what they mean, but there are no more 90 day phase ups around here. I think that doesn't incentivize treatment. I think that helps heal people as well. Um, uh, we, we watch our senses grow. A lot of people come in to get help and um, we don't call you by number here. You, you will be treated like a person. It's not a prison. Um, we're here for the community and we want to be involved in any way that we can. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you for your work. And thank you for taking some time with us to just share a little insight into what clinics like yours are offering and how it can help save lives and some great thoughts on things, even for people like me who don't work in that field, but the way that we talk, the way we um, interact with people about addiction and recovery really can either break stigma or contribute to it. And that really can have direct impact on people's lives and health and um, whether or not they can stay alive. So thanks so much for everything you shared with us. The Ending for Good Summit was amazing. I actually publicized y'all on LinkedIn and I got a lot of feedback. A lot of people from a lot of different states want to know what was that and how can they be a part of it next year. So, awesome. Well, we can't wait for the next one.
All right. All right. Thank you for your time. Thanks, and thank Jeffrey. you for being part of it. Have a blessed All day. All right. You too. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.